Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 20, recorded on April 23rd. The Cloud Pod spends $30 a month on AWS. Good evening, guys. How's it going this fine Tuesday afternoon? Great. How are you? Uh, you know, it's a little bit of a slow news week, but uh, there's been some exciting stuff happening, of course, as always in the world of cloud. You know, we're heading into second quarter and Amazon's doing planning. So there's lots of interesting Twitter activity happening. We'll see what all the fantastic Amazonians come up with uh, for reInvent this year. For sure. It is 80 degrees right now in the marina in San Francisco. So... Yeah, it was quite warm uh, out in my neck of the woods, too. Yesterday, it was hit 90-something. So. Very warm, nice heat wave. Uh, we have a uh, Ryan, a friend of the show, is actually in uh, Death Valley enjoying the heat <laughs> right now. Hopefully surviving the heat so we can get him back again later. Yeah, hopefully. you know, Or not. You know, We'll see how it goes. So, Let's uh, get into the show. So Google has announced a new enterprise IT procurement solution with Private Catalog, which is now in beta. They apparently talked to this, about this at one of the sessions at Google Next, uh, but now it is available to you to start playing with. Uh, this is a private catalog that lets you control the availability and distribution of IT solutions to maintain compliance and governance, simplify internal solution discovery, and ensure that only approved and compatible apps are available throughout your organization. Uh, it does include some management and reporting capabilities to help uh, ease the use of this product and is now available to you to go play with. That's a good feature. I like this. I, I kind of wish everyone would do the same kind of thing. On one hand, though, I, I think it's it's uh, unfortunate to kind of limit what um, your engineers have access to in terms of experimenting and playing with things. I think it may ultimately have some kind of consequence on um, innovation. You can now say to people, hey, you can only deploy instances with 20 vCPUs instead of 400. Uh, maybe great cost control. So excellent. Good feature. Yeah, I think they, um, the nice thing about it too is that you want to be able to maybe have different levels of lockdown. Maybe in production, you don't allow as much, but in your dev or sandboxes, you allow more. And you kind of start ratcheting up that control framework so you can allow innovation to happen, but not unapproved innovation. <laughs> Would you compare this to Service Catalog on Amazon? So Service Catalog is really more of just a set of CloudFormation that you present to your end users to be able to deploy a resource um, that you kind of predefined and you just kind of add in the tagging parameters you want. Uh, service, you know, Private Marketplace and then now this Private Catalog um, allow you to basically take you know a third-party solution like Splunk, and now you can publish it to all of your Amazon accounts or to your Google projects uh, for them to then take advantage of gotcha. as appropriate. Huh. Yeah, I mean, it's, in a way, it's kind of like the organizational service control policies. You can you can lock out or not lock out particular Google services. Yeah, it's uh, definitely something a lot of enterprises need. And you know, following Google's overall theme of enterprise first, this is a perfect enterprise product. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely coming right out of the enterprise move they're making. This is a very clear, simple ISO control that you need to have control of your environment and what can be deployed, and this is how you solve that problem. So, yep, good good improvement. Uh, they also announced uh, GKE Advanced. Uh, this is a new service to for Google Kubernetes Engine to enhance reliability, simplicity, and scale for the enterprise. Uh, includes a new SLA of 99.95% for regional clusters. Uh, has simplified the automation with two components, the Vertical Pod Scaler, or VPA, which watches resource utilizations and adjusts requested CPU and RAM of a container to stabilize workloads, and then a new node auto-provisioning capability that automatically uh, modifies your cluster auto-scaling to handle the 
uh, changes that the vertical pod autoscaler is making. It also includes on the security side, binary authorization to ensure that container images are signed by trusted authorities uh, during the build and test process and that they are known containers. And then of course enables you to use that cloud run service and Knative capabilities, and then all tied into their enhanced uh, Kubernetes usage metering uh, and build back system. So you can see your cluster resources broken down by Kubernetes namespace, label, and attribute that to your organization as appropriate. So I couldn't find any pricing information about this versus what is now going to be GKE standard. Yeah, it wasn't clear that they're what the differentiators are going to be, but it's still early. And I assume that's part of the fact that it's in beta still that they haven't released the pricing quite yet. Yeah, it kind of feels a little bit like, uh, I mean, some of this would be obviously, you know, higher service level from a, a service perspective. But if they start adding features, uh, like software features, it kind of feels like Kubernetes going common core. That'd be an interesting choice for them to make. I think it would cause them some headaches in the market. Yeah. Well, we will we will find out uh, as they kind of continue to enhance the service and get it out uh, in the market. But uh, I definitely think you'll see additional charge for this based on the SLA, especially since they're offering you both the standard and the non-standard. Um, but we will we will find out soon enough. Definitely welcome. I, I see a, it's amazing how many uh, companies we talk to who see Kubernetes as the solution and then discover that there are they've eliminated complexities at one level and added complexities at another level. So, you know, we don't have in the show notes, but there was a fantastic um, medium post from I believe it was Tinder. And they, you know, went over their whole process of adopting Kubernetes over the last two years or so. Um, we'll add it to the show notes uh, so you can find this article. But um, you know, I read through the t- I read through the whole roadmap, and I I kind of got to the end of it, and I was like, well, I'm glad I really didn't go down that path of Kubernetes and just stuck with ECS because that's a lot of uh, infrastructure I have to now manage and deal with that I wouldn't have had to deal with otherwise. Yep. Amazon CloudFront is now available in mainland China. So this is three new edge locations in Beijing, Shanghai, and Zhongwei, operated by Injexia Western Cloud Data Company Limited. Uh, customers can now serve content to end users anywhere in mainland China from these locations. Uh, you need to have, of course, an Amazon origin. And apparently that Amazon origin must be set up as part of the uh, Chinese region uh, and have a valid ICP internet content provider recordal record with China uh, to be able to be used. But uh, I have heard many times at conferences about CloudFront's great until you have to get to China and then you can't use that technology. So I think there's a lot of customers asking Amazon to make this capability uh, possible. And so this is a nice enhancement for those doing business in uh, China. Oh, sure thing. And now you can reach the other, you know, the remaining quarter of the population of the world. Yeah, it's a, it's a big user population for yeah. sure. Yeah, but the fact that the seed has to be there definitely adds some interesting dynamics. Yeah, but with only, you know, the Beijing regions really available to you, if you have them in different parts, you know, by Shanghai or by Zongwei, you know, those users would have some latency. And I don't know what inter- the internet backbone looks like in China, but uh, I imagine being able to deliver content closer to your users is always a win, even in China. Azure has announced a new feature to allow you to move your data from S3 to Azure storage blobs um, using AZ Copy. So AZ Copy uh, is a set of APIs and tools that let you move data typically from on-premise environments or from server environments into the blob storage of Azure. Uh, you could do this before, but uh, you had to use a server kind of in the middle, a middleman box to basically do the conversion from Amazon S3 to Azure Blob. Uh, and this new feature now allows you to do this directly with the API with a put block from URL call. 
uh, that allows you to point that block at or that URL to be an S3 endpoint. And so it'll then scan your S endpoint and then move the data for you uh, in a very highly scalable fashion. How kind. <laughs> yes. I love it. It's, it's interesting to me that the cloud, that Azure's trick to get market share is to make it easier to move from AWS when they're still, you know, 90% of the population on-prem. I think it's, I think it's got to be telling us something. You know, a lot of workloads that have already moved to the cloud maybe are really easy to get in, whereas they don't have, you know, they don't have to be transformed. It's very possible. It's interesting, you know, from Google Next, where they they basically said you can run Kubernetes on Amazon. You know, Azure now saying you can you use our AZ copy feature to move data out of S3. Uh, the cloud wars are starting to heat up a little bit between the providers, which is interesting change of pace where they've been kind of, you know, sort of just frenemies all trying to just fight the good cloud battle. Uh, they're now you know definitely starting to attack each other in a much more open and aggressive way. Yeah, next thing we know, we'll be able to migrate VMs between providers. Oh, speaking of that, <laughs> Amazon <laughs> has announced that you can now move services, uh, servers from Azure to uh, Amazon with the server migration service. And so this allows you to migrate a virtual machine running in Azure to AWS Cloud. And the new capability makes this super simple and basically point and click through the Amazon migration system. Uh, of course, this is free for use and you only pay for the resulting EBS volumes and EC2. I assume this, this is driven by the acquisition Amazon made uh, a few months ago. I think it was one of, the, one of our early shows we talked about this, about being the, the cloud enabler, but never really thought about it being the, um, the cloud stealer. Yep. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, those tools you know, that they've been buying have been you know, starting to get packaged up for partner use now as well, or if you're part of things like the Migration Accelerator program on, on AWS, you can now get access to a lot of those tools, which used to be expensive tools you had to buy separately that you can now get for free. Um, through your partners or through the migration program. So um, those tools are starting to show up more and more if you know where to ask and where, who to look, uh, who to ask and where to look for them. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the way that uh, some of these tools currently work because of what you end up with in the cloud when you're done with them. But uh, I love seeing uh, workload portability increase. I can, I can only imagine that's going to be do good things for our customers and all of us users. Yeah, it's like a shoot them now and ask questions later kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean that's that's been the problem with lift and shift since it was initially created. It's it's not cloud native typically. It's very expensive in how it designs uh, the end of the workload, and it's it's designed for lowest common denominator, and so you don't get a lot of the optimizations you would have gotten otherwise. But for teams that need to move quickly, it it does work. Yeah. yeah, I guess uh, if, you, if your workload can move in this lift and shift manner and you can then shut down your on-premise uh, presence, or your colo, whatever else you have to, to shut down, it's probably still a comparable cost. So uh, this gives you, buys you some time instead of having to renew that 12-month lease or 24-month lease on some colo space. Exactly, especially if it's like you only have 10% of your servers left and you just can't get those workloads out in time. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the CloudPod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered.
Azure has also announced uh, new features for the Azure Application Gateway, which is their version of a load balancer. Uh, you can now rewrite HTTP headers, which is uh, the first step from going from spray and pray load balancing to true application level layer seven uh, load balancing, in my opinion. Uh, you can add, remove, or update HTTP request and response headers in line with the request uh, and do redirects, all kinds of things. You can remove information, you can add information back in for security. And overall, this is a really nice feature that allows you to do a whole bunch of really interesting um, workflows and data flows based on how you want to tra route traffic uh, in your environment. Yeah, it's cool. And when they, when they start letting you perform some kind of routing algorithms based on the contents of the headers as well, that'd be even better because now you start to be in a place where you can replace like F5 GTM with the Azure load balancers. Yeah, exactly. And this is, this is really the key to getting beyond, you know, to the F5, to the Netscaler level of load balancing is you had to have these rewrite features. You had to have advanced routing capabilities based on URL or by header. Um, so, you know, everyone, you know, ALB did this several years ago with Amazon. You know, it's nice to see it here in the application gateway from Azure. Uh, and Google has similar features as well in their load balancer. So it, it's definitely needed and it's something that's very common pattern for many, many SaaS companies out there. Yeah, it's funny it's taken such a long time for all of the providers to, to come up with this kind of functionality because I mean Apache Apache two has supported this this kind of thing for you know near twenty years. So it's kind of bizarre that it didn't make it into the product sooner. Well, I mean, Microsoft's not been the biggest, you know, supporter of Apache two <laughs> and HA proxy <laughs> and Nginx. So, you know, I think it's I think it's definitely helpful. <laughs> but uh you know, so who knows how they built this in the back end where you know for sure that most likely the very first versions of ELB were either based on HA proxy or Nginx and ALBs are, are either, you know, custom code that they wrote after they realized the scaling limitations or they're, you know, scaled out versions of those other technologies. So uh, these are things that, you know, every company has to kind of go through as they mature their cloud models. Well, you mean they're not using IS? <laughs> I mean, they might be, I would hope not, but uh, <laughs> I, I have no idea for sure. I don't think IS would scale to their levels. <laughs> Speaking of clouds that are trying to catch up, uh, Oracle got some bad news from the Pentagon where they announced that Microsoft and Amazon are the Jedi contract finalists. Uh, Pentagon announced this uh, a couple weeks ago when we were doing our recap show for GCP. Uh, despite Oracle's best efforts to file lawsuits, protests, and back-channel complaint to the president, uh, it has had no effect, and the two clear leaders are Microsoft and Amazon to win the $10 billion Jedi contract. As uh, one of the DoD people says, the claims of potential violations in you know in the bidding process have been investigated, and there have definitely been uncovered potential ethical violations, which have been further referred to the DoG internal investigator. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine that the outcome would be any different for Oracle. No, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I think it's very clear that these were really the right two people to be in the lead. <laughs> and so it makes sense that they are the finalists, despite you know any potential conflicts of interest that may have arised from the acquisition process. Yeah, I mean, even if Google had been still in the running because the employee base hadn't actually uh, you know, complained about doing, doing work for the war machine, um, I don't think Google is in the right place yet to, to serve this kind of workload anyway. So, yeah. Well, and, and Google got out, and so did IBM very early on in the process where, uh, although IBM and Oracle were both the ones kind of point, poking fingers at, you know, the unfairness of this bid. But, uh, you know, overall, there's a lot of questions about does it really need to be a single bidder for a $10 billion contract? But, uh, you know, it, it, we'll see what happens. They say the winner will be announced sometime in June, July timeframe this year. So we'll find out who it is and someone's going to have a big party when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> 
Are we going to take bets on this? Ooh. Ooh. Uh, I'm, I'm still feeling pretty good about Amazon's chances on this, despite our next article. <laughs> Which is? <laughs> well, I was seeing Peter had a bet. I, I, would, I would go Amazon as well. All right. Well, to uh, help, help uh, Azure in their quest to get this deal, they have announced the government secret region private preview has opened with expansion of additional DoD IL level 5 controls. Uh, these are two new Asia government secret regions now in preview. They are still pending their accreditation, but there's, they're expected to get that very quickly because they're identical to the other region that already received it. Uh, this region supports federal civilian, DOD, intelligence community, and U.S. government partners working with secret enclave departments. And this allows the expansion of the DOD impact level 5 assessment, providing a cost-effective option for all L5 workloads. So a secret private preview instead of a public private preview. <laughs> Yeah, it gets a little weird when you start talking about these secret, secret private regions that you know are now in private previews for someone. So, uh, but uh, well, who's who's previewing this if it's not the government though? But it's a government secret region. It's not a secret preview because we know about it. <laughs> they actually named the region the government secret region. Yeah, how they did? Oh, yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> it was very, uh, very on the nose of them and their naming. Uh, but you know, the, t- the people who are previewing it are going to be SaaS providers who are working with a government. Um, you know, who are already building solutions for them, intelligence communities, they're all, they're all trying to get their workloads onto this platform as fast as possible so that way they can sell their applications to the GSA and to the various government agencies. In addition to that, Amazon announced uh, the availability of organizations for GovCloud. So now you can use organizations and all of the CSPs and restrictions and everything that you can enforce with organizations, but in your GovCloud accounts. Um, this apparently does require a one-to-one relationship between a commercial AWS account and a GovCloud account, uh, and that relationship will still be maintained even in these organizations. So you'll, if you have an organization on the commercial side, you will use that organization to create the organization on the GovCloud side, and then after that, they are sort of separate. Uh, you cannot use a GovCloud organization or a commercial organization to manage the other one. Just keep that in mind. Makes sense. It's a little weird that you have a dependency to use GovCloud on a commercial region first, Seems like a good way to end up with the government data in the wrong, yeah. the wrong region. <laughs> well, maybe that's a hint that we're going to have some kind of recursive uh, organizations eventually with sub-organizations. If this GovCloud org is actually a, a, a sub-member, a sub-org of the, uh, of the other org. Then. Well, yeah, so one of the things they, um, they showed in their example in the article, if you click into it, is um, so you can have a commercial entity that has an organization. So let's say you're a SaaS company that's providing applications to the government. And every government entity needed to have their own organization, their own Amazon accounts. Um, you could actually have a one-to-many, uh, you know, basically one-to-many organizational thing where you basically have a bunch of these organizations on the government side tied back to a single commercial uh, on the other side. It's a little, a little interesting. Yeah. That'd be good for service providers in general, I think. Yeah, I think overall, you know, the more you can give isolation for these super secret workloads, that's a, that's a better scenario. That's funny. It's like having a gigantic vault with a big sign on the side that says super secret stuff inside. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to attack something, <laughs> attack this. <laughs> no secret stuff here. Indeed. Uh, Google has continued to deliver on Thomas Kurian's promise to enhance their enterprise GCP exec team by hiring Robert Enslin. Uh, he's a 27-year-old SAP veteran uh, who's brought in to boost cloud sales and support for GCP. Uh, Kurian says, Rob's expertise in building and running organizations globally, business acumen, and deep customer and partner relationships make him a perfect fit for Google. Definitely a great salesman. Um, not sure that SAP have the, the best track record for implementation success, but, you know. 
but he has those customer relationships, right? If you, you know, being a former SAP guy, he's going to have the phone number to many, many fortune 500 CIOs yeah. and CFOs, um, to hopefully help make some type of play in those places. So it's a, it's a good move, uh, by a TK for sure. And uh, I'm curious to see what that means. Uh, while he was at SAP, he also, uh, oversaw, uh, the cloud business group and the acquisition of Qualtrics, which was one of their big plays for the HANA business. So he's got a lot of experience. And if uh, some of the other rumors around Thomas doing some big acquisitions are true, this might be a good play for this person as well. All right. CloudBees, the enterprise version of Jenkins, has purchased Electric Cloud to strengthen its DevOps platform. Electric Cloud has been relatively unknown, but has several marquee customers, including Intel, Samsung, and GM. They have two main products. The first one is a Electric Flow, which is used by customers to automate con- and control application releases at scale. And then their other choices, other products, Electric Accelerator, uh, which accelerates the software build and testing times by giving developers more time to experiment. And it does this by combining software tasks across physical and cloud central processing units to speed up development velocity by two or to three times the normal rate. That sounds like a great sales pitch, but how do you give developers more time to do something but actually make it faster? I don't know. Yeah, I was a little curious <laughs> about how that worked too. Uh, <laughs> Christina Noren, chief ex- ex- uh, product officer at CloudBee, says, having the electric cloud offering under the CloudBee's umbrellas gives companies a greater ability to manage the delivery of value to customers. It's not just about speed. It's about delivering business value securely and efficiently with confidence at high speeds. They're not integrating the products at, at, at this time, at least. So anyone who's a, a CloudBees customer doesn't get access to Electric Cloud feature set and vice versa. I would think it's very difficult to integrate anything into Jenkins based on the fact that it doesn't have a database or you know a real user model or anything that you would potentially want in an enterprise software package. <laughs> Um, so I, I think it'll take a while, but you know, it's definitely something I bet that gets integrated into CodeShip pretty quickly. I think the, the big buy for them was electric flow. Cause when I looked at the website and looked at the products, I thought the electric flow was way more interesting than the accelerator was. Um, just because I actually understand what the flow does and being able to dynamically provide, you know, deploy orchestration of application releases across a large fleet of compute and being able to visualize that is a really great tool for SRE and DevOps teams alike. I mean, CloudBees was, I felt like was pretty early to like the Amazon marketplace, um, probably got, got a significant number of customers back when products were pretty bare bones. And uh, uh, like you, I checked out the, the website and I, uh, you know, the first thing I thought was how, well, you know, maybe CloudBees wants to pick up something better than CloudBees right now and leverage that for, to maintain their existing user base. I would give them something that is not just a managed Jenkins instance. It's really hard to move away from Jenkins based on, you know, just the overall community adoption, developer knowledge of it, how it works. It's a Swiss army knife that can do anything. You could argue maybe it doesn't do anything really excellent, you know, really at the best, but it it does everything. So these kind of more specialized tools like Electric Cloud and even CodeShip, you know, kind of give them maybe a more opinionated version of both code build and code deploy. Um, that maybe gets interesting in the future, but I think we're still several years away from Jenkins losing any major credibility in the market. Yeah, I don't necessarily think it's Jenkins as a technology, more so the people who are looking for a fully managed offering out there. Um, Jenkins is very do-it-yourself. At least, you know, it's been a while since I've used the CloudBees Jenkins, but the first time I did, it was um, pretty much Jenkins. It, it is, <laughs> and it doesn't really scale. I mean, it's good for small organizations, but as, as you grow... A single master doesn't scale well, and multi-master costs a lot of money, especially with cloud bees. And so um, I, th- I think there's, there's definitely this gap between you know small organizations and enterprise organizations where we still need this kind of automation, but 
the, the cloud-based model doesn't isn't sustainable just yet. It's definitely the beginning of a strategy that I'm not entirely sure what that is yet. But, you know, CloudBees has been very active in this acquisition market, buying DevOps tooling. I'm curious to see how they kind of stitch it all together. And, you know, it'll be see, curious to see how in six months from now what, these, what the roadmap looks like. Yeah, they might just retire stuff and it might just be customers they're acquiring and picking the best of breed to, be. to live. Microsoft open sourced uh, their data accelerator, which is an easy to configure pipeline for streaming at scale. This is actually built by Microsoft's developer division. Uh, and they use this every day and will continue to make improvements to this tool chain, but they're hoping to get you, uh, one of their engineers or developers out in the market who's doing real-time streaming, to also potentially contribute to their open source project. Um, sometimes you just need a playground in which to learn about and evaluate the options, capabilities, and the solution space, and that's what Data Accelerator is all about. Uh, they've been using it since 2017, and they use it for all of their large-scale data processing. So what, what projects would you are they competing with? Is this like media streaming, or is this... So this is it's using... Um, Hadoop and and Spark and all the things under the hood. It's just really an orchestration layer around all of that technology, similar to um, like a Databricks or SageMaker. Um, this allows you to do that at a much rapid pace. They've been able to shrink it down to a single box deployment, so you can do local testing and discovery on your box. Uh, it has a pretty interesting UI designer-based rule and query building engine, and then it has a bunch of different capabilities to output SQL uh, spark syntax. I'm just kind of skeptical when like, people open source things like this. It's kind of like, well, they've probably redrawn the budget to continue to work on this internally and they're hoping that the community will come together and keep patching it or adding new features, whatever the case may be, so that people will stick with the uh, Azure cloud. I don't know. It doesn't, I don't see any like differentiating factors between this and um, and anything else that's, that exists right now. Someone, uh, maybe it was Corey Quinn actually, had, was tweeting about, you know, Open sourcing a project is really, you know, developers' way of getting their project out into the open so they can transition their job and pick it up at their new company. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I believe that, sincerely. Yeah, uh, I can definitely see that uh, that pattern. Well, uh, we're going to talk about Apple. We don't we don't typically talk about Apple here on the podcast. Uh, we're not an Apple podcast, although we did model ourselves very heavily uh, after uh, some Apple podcasts. But uh, apparently they're spending $30 million a month with AWS. Uh, and apparently, rumor says they've signed a $1.5 billion EDP. And of course, as the internet likes to do when Lyft and Pinterest, you know, Pinterest and Snapchat all announce their pricing and how much they're spending on their Amazon bills, everyone loses their minds and says, you know, they could build their own data centers and why are they doing and all that. And apparently, Apple is still building their own data centers. But, you know, when they're spending 200, you know, they're getting $265 billion in revenue. Um, I don't think they really care about $30 million a month that much. That's change. <laughs> and, it's pocket change to them, and they'd rather focus on building out iCloud and Apple TV Plus and all their new streaming offerings that they're trying to get in the market. My favorite is when the reports imply that this is clear proof that it's more expensive to do things in the cloud. Yeah, which is, has no context of the scale, <laughs> no context of the amount of data or compute power that they need to be able to run these services. It's like, you know, yeah, is it is it a gigabyte of data they're storing for $30 million? No, it's it's probably a lot, a lot more than that. It's probably... An, either petabyte or exabyte scale. Yeah. And Apple's probably very happy to not have to build, build and maintain data centers that handle this. How many iPhone customers are there? And, uh, or iPad customers and divide that by $30 million a month. That's, that's hundreds, of, hundreds of cents on the dollar per customer. And you know how much they charge for things like iCloud storage? Oh, no it, is, oh, yeah, you, it is super duper expensive. You, know, you have to pay for that? I thought that was a, like a, you, you spend $1,000 on the phone or you got that for free. No, no, no. You get you get five gigabytes free, uh, which cannot back up your two hundred fifty six 
gigabyte phone. And so you typically have to end up in a either a family plan for storage or you end up in a, a personal plan for storage. And so I believe like my family has uh, a couple hundred gigabytes and we're paying like $10 a month for that uh, to basically back up all of our devices to Apple plus getting advantage of all the stuff. Wow. No, yeah. we're all in on uh, Google right now. And I think I spend about... $20 a year or something on several hundred gigabytes of storage on Google Drive and automatically synchronizes the, uh, the photos and everything else in high quality. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's definitely not an area that uh, Apple is, you know, they're not known for their frugality and their costs and prices. I don't so. know. No, I mean, I suppose <laughs> uh, more if you pay for it. One click, yeah, though. But... One click. It's already there. I pay for it. It's already there. Every month I see the four ninety nine charge and I'm like, eh, it's not worth my time to go figure out how to do something different. Have you ever had Indeed. to restore anything from it, though? I mean, like, how successful yeah, is it? Yeah, no, everything works perfect. Everything yeah. works perfect. Oh, yeah. I've, I've moved my profile from multiple phones over the years, you know, just by restoring my iCloud backup. And it just works. And it's super nice. And I don't think about it. And all my photos are backed up to them and to Google just to be safe. And I'm super happy with the service. Cool. You, you know, but they also they had to, you know, there's part of this that people don't realize is that all those movies and music that they sell and store on iCloud and iTunes music and all that, that's all stored somewhere and Amazon's not a bad place to put it. So people just don't understand how the amount of data that they're potentially dealing with at this point. Yeah. God, it's so funny. I see neither Apple nor Amazon have commented on reports. I mean, they're just a customer. <laughs> I mean, they're, well, yeah, they're Amazon's not going to say anything. And <laughs> yeah, it's one of those silly things. Amazon's not going to say anything about it and Apple's not going to say anything about it either. So yeah. Way to make it, make just, way to make a news out of nothing. Exactly. Uh, Amazon CloudFormation has updated uh, several of their task definition items. So basically EC2 has now added in capacity reservation syntax to CloudFormation. ECS has added in task definition support for app mesh proxies. And uh, container depends on start timeouts, stop timeouts. And then several ELB changes for enabling health checks or not enabling health checks. Um, Overall, this is typically something we would cover in the lightning round, but... uh, we figured we'd give you a little taste of it since there was some really interesting uh, little features they released here. I'm not surprised they made this a, a real press release, especially given the, uh, the visibility around the, the Reddit post a month or month and a half ago, maybe, which got a bunch of traction and Jeff Barvis weighing in. And he's obviously been back to the product team and it's clearly on their minds now that people think that CloudFormation doesn't uh, keep up to date with, with technology, with their own technology. Yeah, and it's funny because you think about just in general, this concept, right? The two pizza team at AWS. And so the CloudFormation team, you know, has to have their roadmap and probably doesn't make any sense to hold back features and all the other products until CloudFormation supports them. And so what's what's the answer? Because it feels like it should be minimum viable product. I can launch it with CloudFormation. Uh, maybe, but I don't know that a two pizza team has to be for an Amazon service. I mean, it could be the two pizza team is an Amazon feature for a service. One could be working on backlog or bugs. One could be working on new features. It's, I don't know. I, th- I think they've slacked off. And this is this is definitely definitely welcome that they're working on these new things now. I was thinking that they can just do like Terraform and treat internally all the actual product teams in Amazon like providers and then require, just like they require their um, products to have an API prior to shipping them, uh, require them to update their providers before they ship features. But you know, then you end up in the Terraform 0.12 situation where I'd love to try that out. 0.12 sounds fantastic. Unravel loops and things, it's just, it's just brilliant. But it, you look at the provider support for 0.12 yet, and basically it's untestable. 
you, you can mm-hmm. test terif- you can test HCL two as a language, <laughs> and that's about <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, that's it for new news this week. Uh, let's move on to the lightning round with Peter. All right. Where do we stand right now with our scoring? I think we just need to pull my name out of here because I, as the uh, arbitrator, moderator, moderator would be the right word. I think can't uh, can't score myself. But uh, Jonathan and Justin are tied. We have no guests today, so they will not be winning. Um. Yeah. Or maybe they will, which would be awkward. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was such a bad round. I'm giving it to the guest. Nobody. Um, <laughs> but this is a pretty quick week, too. So we'll start with Amazon uh, announcing the new AWS Certified Alexa Skill Builder Specialty Exam. Alexa, didn't we just talk about this three weeks ago? I still, I still don't know why I want to pay $300 to prove that I can write a skill that no one's going to use. Right. Why don't you just write the skill? Sell the skill and make even more money. Amazon RDS for Postgres now supports multi-major version upgrades to Postgres 11. They must really be into Postgres 11. Like going from Postgres 9 to 11 and have it fully automated for you. But maybe Postgres is giving them some money on the back end. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but they're definitely going all in on Postgres 11. There's probably some horrendous defect. In Postgres 10, <laughs> like, please, don't run 10, just skip over it, pretend it doesn't exist. <laughs> like, we know that we took, you know, six months to get to 10, and then we only took two weeks after that to get to 11, but we, we just want you to skip 10. Just don't go there. Azure Container Registry now supports Singularity Image Format Containers. I mean, it's like highly relevant naming with the first black hole image and everything, but really, what is a Singularity Image Format Container? Apparently, it's a container for containers, is what my reading told me earlier today. Uh, and I didn't really understand why you really need this, but apparently you do. You do on Azure, or you do in general? I mean, like I've never heard of these things before. Uh, there, so it's a it's apparently an open standard to the OCI and to a bunch of the you know CNCF and a couple other the organizations that are doing container standardization. Um, but you know, I, I sort of feel like it's like the OVF format of containers. Yeah, so okay. It, you know, that way you can just port it between multiple different container systems. If if for some reason you're using Nomad or something other than Docker or LXC, uh, you know, you can now use this single format, I guess. Uh, Amazon WorkDocs introduces document approvals. I'm denying Jonathan for recommending WorkDocs as a solution. Just like, hey, hey, we might be able to take on DocuSign. I, <laughs> I don't think so. Amazon WorkDocs migration services is now available. Unfortunately, only migrates you to WorkDocs, not from WorkDocs. <laughs> <laughs> Ding, ding. I'm just giving the point right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> AWS has expanded private link to now support Kinesis Data Firehose. Everything should be private links. Like, I mean, do we really care that Kinesis Data Firehose, which not everyone uses, is now in a private link? And there's a ton of other services that are now available in private link. I mean, I'm sort of more myth that they all cost money now versus the old way of doing you know, like S3 endpoints in your account didn't really charge you anything additional. Yeah, they, they should uh, be stealth releases. They should, they should be like stealth news items where you look back and say, oh, we always supported that. Didn't you realize? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I bet somebody is really happy right now with that announcement. Somebody somebody must be making or saving a bunch of money for, to have to have had this feature built for them. Yeah. This must be a big request. Amazon Polly adds Arabic language support with new female Arabic voice called Zina. So this this is impressive. I having worked in Iraq for eighteen months of my my career early on, 
and being around a lot of Arabic speakers, it is a very difficult language uh, to listen to and to interpret if you're not familiar with it. And so that the fact that they now put this into poly, that's very impressive. I was a little bit surprised they chose a female voice for this based on the politics of that region. But, you know, overall, it's a great enhancement to poly. Yeah, definitely. Love it. Should be a female voice. That's perfect. You can now manage Azure HD Insight using the .NET, Python, or Java SDKs. How do you imagine before if it wasn't with an SDK? Console? I think oh, no, just... console. That's, that, that should be like a bad word around here. Or maybe maybe you just called the API directly and with curl. I don't, I don't really know. It was a little weird to me, this one, too. Amazon Comprehend now supports confusion matrices for custom classification. I don't understand. I'm sorry. <laughs> I really can't comprehend this next one you're about to talk about, though. Oh, this is even better. AWS Parallel Cluster 2.3.1 uh, with new enhanced support for Slurm Workload Manager. It feels like this is a bad guy in the upcoming Avengers movie, Slurm, you know, or a Ninja Turtles bad guy. I'm not sure. It's it's a really weird name for a product. Slurm is in Futurama. It was like it was like some kind of like the the young of some kind of alien race or something, and they didn't realize what they were eating. It's just a really weird, bad name for what this is. It's apparently some type of uh, simple Linux unified resource manager or something like that is what it actually stands for, which is. It's just weird that they chose Slurm as their <laughs> their acronym. Yeah, all you need to know is it's about HPC clusters. All jokes aside, HPC is what a better uh, use case. Can you come up with a better use case for the cloud than HPC? Well, Google can't. I mean, with their with their pie to three point one four trillion digits, thirty one point four trillion digits. So, what a waste of time. Yeah, feeling bored one day. What shall I do? There was several talks about that pie thing at Google Next. Uh, where she walked through the architecture. She was on the main stage day two talking about the architecture. Oh, not the main stage, but the, not the keynote, but the later on developer keynote they did in the afternoon on day two. Uh, they were super excited about this Pi thing. And it, technically, it is somewhat complex because you can't interrupt the process or otherwise the, the number comes invalid. Um, but man, it was, it was uh, in big, you know, they were very proud of this accomplishment. <laughs> All right, changing our back to our lightning round from our slow running stream round. Amazon Aurora Serverless now supports sharing and cross-region copying of snapshots. Yay, basic functionality for the win. I feel like Aurora Serverless should be a much bigger deal than they've made it out to be. And I, I'm curious if people are actually using it in production or not. Because like on paper, this sounds amazing. Uh, I just don't know what the reality of it is. I mean, it scales down to zero servers, right? It scales down to zero servers. It does, but it's not serverless. That's that's the problem. It's with not serverless. Like, Lambda, you can say, oh, that's serverless. But but when you know that they're literally attaching your storage devices to servers just in time or just after you make the request, and sometimes it's faster than other times, uh, it's, you know, it's not serverless. It's it's definitely full of servers. Yeah, if you get to zero and then you go from zero to one, you're going to notice. You do. It can be like 30 seconds. Yeah. All right, Azure cost management now generally available. <laughs> for a pay-as-you-go customers. <laughs> How much does it cost? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad that you no longer have to be an enterprise to get cost management, which was my complaint about this last time they talked about well, it. Well, they realized that you can never become an enterprise if you don't have cost management. 
what I think is interesting. Or is you become <laughs> the wrong type of enterprise, the bankrupt kind. They all say we help you track and control costs. And every single feature is helping you track. Mm-hmm. Not one feature of any of these tools actually is controlling your costs. Yeah, because if you prevent them, that causes outages. which They don't want to. All right, Peter. Who won the uh, round this I, week? I gave you the ding ding right when I hit it, Justin. All you right. got that one. That maybe Jonathan redeemed himself somewhere. No, nah, I would have been you back. I'm going to try to do it real time so people can see the score as we go. Mm, little nice. tweaks to our system. Nice little tweaks as you go. Well, yes. When you listen to last week's show, Peter, you may realize that you mistakenly gave me the point for the sound effect. No! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I asked. I totally trolled you. Like, the, the sound effect was from Law and Order, not CSI. I couldn't find a sound effect for CSI, and I thought, this will trick me. Actually, I thought, it was, I thought it was CSI, too. But I, I, give, I still give Peter credit, because Law and Order, CSI, they're basically the same show, just different. Oh, ways. I get it. Yeah, I don't watch either of those. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Audible.com. Subscribe today on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod.